0: Brothers and sisters, foundations matter. If you talk to people who live in areas where it is prone to earthquakes, they understand that foundations matter. A few weeks ago there was a tragic earthquake in the country of Morocco and nearly 3,000 people died. Their homes did not have foundations prepared for earthquakes. Their homes were made of mud brick and wood And even the concrete ones did not have foundations that could withstand an earthquake. Jesus pointed to the importance of a foundation when he closed the Sermon on the Mount with these words. He who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that rock, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But he who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Foundations matter. Many people today are building the foundation of their lives, not on a solid foundation, but they're building castles in the air. We live in an age that has been called postmodern, in which there is a widespread denial of objective truth and reality. That's why people are unable to affirm the obvious biological and scientific fact that there are two genders, and that a man really cannot become a woman, and a woman really cannot become a man, and a man really cannot give birth to a child so that he becomes a birthing person. Friends, people today are building their lives on the sandy foundation of subjective feeling, supposing that if they feel it, it's real. What a delusion, what a deception. A man feels like a woman, and so he proclaims himself to be a woman. Well, thankfully, brothers and sisters, our lives, our values, our morality, our ethics are not built on such sandy soil Our lives are based on the objective reality of a God who really is, and a God who has communicated himself rationally and propositionally in a revelation that we call the Bible. And that revelation, the Bible, has a a beginning, which lays a foundation for all the rest of God's revealed truth. That beginning is the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And today I begin what to me is kind of a daunting series of sermons in which I'm purposing to bring one message, one sermon only, on each book of the Bible. Why am I doing this? To give us the big picture, what theologians call the meta narrative. I think we will see the amazing mind, the divine mind that is behind this book. As you see the unfolding of God's plan through uh, 1,500 years with 40-some authors, you see the great unity and the mind that is behind this book, the Bible. Genesis is the Greek word meaning origin or beginning. It translates the Hebrew word reshith, which also means first or beginning, And Genesis is a book of foundations. Truths that are stated in the book of Genesis are foundational to the entire plan of God as it unfolds in the rest of the Bible and in the rest of history. In Genesis, we have the beginning of the world. We have the origin of the human race. We have the institution of marriage and family. We have the entrance of sin into the the world. We have the beginning of the nations. We have the establishment of human government. We have the beginning of the Jewish nation and we have an idea of how God is going to redeem people from the effects of their fall into sin. And we even have a hint of who the deliverer is going to be. Genesis was written by Moses. The rest of the Bible testifies to that. The real clincher is that Jesus affirms that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. For example, he says in uh, Matthew 19, 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. That comes from Deuteronomy 24. In Luke five fourteen he says to a man who had been healed, make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded and go to the priest. That's from Leviticus. Jesus affirmed that the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, were written by Moses. And here's the outline for this morning. We're going to look at the narrative of Genesis most of our time. We're going to look at doctrines derived from Genesis and lessons to be learned from Genesis. So let's plunge in the narrative of Genesis. And if you're a young Christian and you haven't read Genesis yet, or you haven't read Genesis in a long time, my apologies in one sense, because I'm going to assume a lot of knowledge of the Genesis narratives. Hopefully it'll be an incentive for you to go back and read Genesis. But to cover one book in one message, we have to assume a lot of knowledge of the book on your part. Genesis begins with creation. Right at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no attempt to prove God's existence. He is just assumed to be. Romans 1, by the way, tells us that every human being knows that there is a God. There's no word about what God was doing before he created the heavens and the earth. There is no word about God's creation of the angels. But we learn right at the outset in the book of Genesis who God is. God is the creator, and God is the sovereign ruler over his creation. Later, Psalm 24 will say, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, for he has founded it upon the seas. God is the ruler over the creation because he's the creator. One has said, because he is the author, he has authority over his creation. We also have a hint that God is a triunity. In Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And some theologians believe this is a hint of the Trinity, because all three members of the Trinity were responsible for the creation. Genesis 1.2 tells us that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And John tells us in his gospel that the Word who became flesh, which is Jesus, All things came into being through him. So we have a hint that the God who is, is a triune God. The first two chapters of Genesis also tell us who we are as human beings. We have been created by the infinite personal God. And we are the apex. We are the summit. We are the highest point of God's creation on the earth. Why? Because we alone have been made in the image and likeness of God. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means several things. It means we are far more intelligent than the rest of the creation. It means that we are moral beings. We have a sense of right and wrong. The groundhog in your backyard or the deer that in her habit, our backyard, do not have a moral sense of right and wrong, but we do. But in the context, let us make man in our image, In the context, what is especially in view is that man has made to rule over the rest of creation. He has been put in charge of the rest of creation. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, over over the whole earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in particular, the image of God means that we are co-regents with God. We rule over the rest of creation under God. We also learn from the first chapter of Genesis that we are made male and female. Chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Friends, I don't need to tell you that there are only two genders. And until five historic minutes ago, it was obvious to everybody in the world that there are only two genders, right? But we have so become so depraved as to ignore obvious biology. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, and it was an atheist PhD in biology who is constrained to speak out. No need to defend God on his part, but he's constrained to speak out and say, there are only two sexes. And that's what God says in the beginning. He made them male and female. But last week, I noted that the theme of the whole Bible, I'm convinced, is the kingdom of God. And when we ask, what about the kingdom of God in these first two chapters of Genesis? Well, as we saw last week, we have in these first two chapters, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and under God's blessing. That's where the kingdom of God begins. Some have viewed the garden as a temple garden, a sanctuary, because it was there that Adam and Eve communed and had fellowship with God. But as we know, that fellowship between God and those first humans in that pristine paradise did not last. And so we continue with the fall. We begin with creation, and now the fall. Not long into the historic account of the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell into sin This is recorded in chapter 3. God had graciously placed them in that garden paradise. He said, you may eat and enjoy any of the fruit of any of the trees of the garden, but he put one there as a test. From that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat lest you die. We know the story that Satan, in the form of a serpent, came into the garden, tempted our first parents. They disobeyed God. They fell into sin and death came upon them. Spiritual death came upon them immediately. Their relationship with God was broken. How do we know? Because they tried to hide from God. But the seeds of physical death were then sown in their bodies. They were made not to die, but now they were destined to die. Their punishment was banishment from the garden paradise. The the punishment of the wife, the woman, was to be pain in childbirth for the man. He would bring forth fruit from the ground with the sweat of his brow. Nature was going to fight back now. And so the whole earth is cursed because of their sin. And we ask, well, what will become of the kingdom of God now? Let's move to consider, after considering the creation and the fall, redemption graciously promised and preserved. First of all, redemption graciously promised. God not only cursed the man and the woman, but he cursed the serpent. And in the language by which he cursed the serpent, we have a promise that launches the storyline for the rest of redemptive history and the rest of the Bible. It is found in Genesis 3.15. Listen to these crucial words. And I, God, will put enmity between you, serpent, devil, And the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. God is not willing to destroy his rebellious creation, instead, he offers hope that in the future there will be a victory over the serpent who had lured our parents into defecting from God. This is the first gospel promise. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first evangel, the first gospel. And it is a promise of victory over Satan and triumph of God's kingdom, that a seed of the serpent, a seed of the devil, would somehow bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He would be wounded. But the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This is a promise of the eventual triumph of God's kingdom over Satan. So with that scene, the battle, the enmity begins between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what we're going to do is trace that battle through Genesis. And what we're going to see to the glory of God the gracious preservation of God's promise. So I want you to keep in mind that Genesis 3:15 promise. Someday there's going to be a seed of the woman, a descendant of a woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. Now watch how God preserves that seed against every effort to destroy it, through the book of Genesis. It is a marvel. First, we're going to see God's promised redemption graciously preserved through Noah. The next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 4, tells us where the battle lines are. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is of the evil one, John tells us. And Cain killed his brother because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. The human race then expands. Culture and craftsmanship develop. But so does sin in a downward spiral. One descendant of Cain by the name of Lamech takes two wives for himself. There you have polygamy. And whereas Cain murdered one person, this man, Lamech, committed multiple murders. But Adam and Eve have a son, Seth. And through Seth, the seed would be continued. But sins multiply on the earth. There's reckless killing. There's incest. There's violence to the point where we read in Genesis 6:5 these words. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then jumping down to verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. God is so repulsed by the depth and the pervasiveness of human wickedness that he's purposing to destroy the earth in a worldwide flood. But he's unwilling to destroy the entire human race. As you know, and as Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord instructs Noah to build an ark and to take into that ark himself and his seven family members and specimens of animals of every kind who would be spared death in this worldwide flood. Then God makes a covenant with Noah, promising never to destroy the earth again by water, and he gives the rainbow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. In other words, life on earth will continue. God has gracious purposes for the earth, and so he will not totally destroy it. His promise of a seed will yet be fulfilled. The indications that God is still ruling despite the pervasive wickedness is twofold. Number one, we know God rules because he's in a position to judge the earth. His sovereign power over the earth is indicated by his judgment upon the wicked world. And his gracious promises are also indicated by the covenant he makes with Noah. He's going to preserve the earth so that his gracious purposes for the restoration of his kingdom might be fulfilled. And then we have Babel. So Noah comes out of the ark. He's recommissioned. A lot of parallels between the recommissioning of Noah and the original commissioning of the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. But guess what? There's still sin. Noah himself sinned. Noah gets out, plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk. And then his one son, Ham, looks at him sensually, Whereas the other sons cover him up in his nakedness. And we see that mankind's bent towards sin continues until man's arrogance reaches the point that he builds a tower called the ziggurat reaching to heaven. We read in Genesis 11 and verse 4 these words They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Tom Schreiner, the theologian, says a ziggurat represents the apex of anthropocentrism instead of theocentrism. This was the height of man-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. Did you notice the language? Let us make for ourselves. This is man's tendency still today to make a utopia for himself. So we have Babel. God comes, and because of that wicked attempt to exalt themselves, he confuses their languages and he scatters them to break up the man-centered mutiny. But now we ask, there's no immediate promise of grace. How is it that God's kingdom is going to triumph and be preserved? Well, enter Abraham, first called Abram. And so we see that God's promised redemption is graciously preserved through Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, a turning point in the book of Genesis. God, though the situation is bleak on the earth, evil is pervasive and universal. God, in grace, reaches into some idolatrous community and he calls a certain man Abram and makes covenant promises to him. Listen to Revel, um, Genesis 12, to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the seed promised in Genesis 3.15, is going to pass through Abraham. Abraham is promised a great nation, a land, and offspring. And he's promised that all the earth will be blessed through him. So the promise of the seed is going to be carried on through Abraham's family. And note the parallels. As Adam was told to exercise dominion, Abraham is promised a kingdom of a great nation. As Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, listen to what God promised to Abraham. In a little later in Genesis 17 in verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, exalted father, but you your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. A little later on, he says, your descendants will be like the sand of the the sea and like the stars of the sky. So God is preserving the promise of a seed. It's going to come through this former idolater, Abraham. But the promise is in jeopardy. Abraham, though he's a man who believes God, he's still a sinner. And at one point, he threatens the promise when he comes down to Egypt during a famine. And because his wife, Sarah, was beautiful, he feared that he would be killed and someone would take her. So he says, please tell them that you are my sister. So she does that. And she's taken into the harem of of uh, of the Pharaoh. And um, the seed was in jeopardy. But God graciously intervenes. In a dream, he tells Pharaoh, or he rather, he brings plagues on Pharaoh until Pharaoh gives his wife back, and the seed is preserved. But then the seed is challenged in another way. Sarai is old and barren. She can't have children. How can you have a continuation of the seed if you can't bear a child? Well, as you know, Abraham and Sarah attempt by some carnal means having a child through her handmaiden, Hagar. That was Ishmael. That wasn't God's plan. And so God supernaturally enables Sarah to conceive a child past the, 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 day, the time of childbearing, and that child is, is Isaac. And then again, later on, Abraham also um, lies about his wife being his sister. But again, God intervenes in a dream to that king until she gives his wife back to him. And then in chapter 22, the seed is threatened. As we read it this morning, Abraham is told of all things to take Isaac, the child of promise, the child through whom the seed would come, take him out and kill him. And Abraham in obedience to God does that Hebrews says that he believed that if necessary, God would raise him from the dead. But as you know, as he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac's breast, his hand is stayed and he is shown a ram caught in the thicket who is to be substituted for Isaac. Isaac is called repeatedly, as we heard it this morning, your only son. God spared Abraham's only son because he would provide another sacrifice. This, of course, is a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's son was spared, but God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. And so do you see how God's promise of a seed is providentially preserved through Abraham? But then God's promised redemption is graciously preserved through Isaac. Isaac is the son, and the covenant promise passes to him. And we read in Genesis 26, 3 and 4, Sojourn in this land, God, to Isaac, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Isaac is the chosen seed, but there's, there's a problem there. Where would Isaac find a godly wife to continue this godly seed? Well, Genesis 24 shows us how God directed Abraham's servant to go to his relatives, keep them away from the pagans in the land of Canaan, and find a wife for my son, and he was led to Rebekah. And so Isaac marries a godly woman, Rebekah. Then Isaac commits the same sin as his father, lies about Rebekah being his sister, but again, God intervenes, and she is spared. Another challenge is that, like Sarah, Rebekah was barren, but Isaac prays. And she conceives. So God's promised redemption is graciously preserved through Isaac. Now God's promised redemption graciously preserved through Jacob. As many of you know, Rebecca and Isaac have twins, and um, Jacob and Esau. And God sovereignly chooses the younger over the older. The older shall serve the younger. That was God's plan. But how did that come about? Well, it, it came about through deceit. Jacob was a deceiver. And in the, the stew incident where you know Esau comes and he's famished and he sells his birthright, Jacob cons him out of his birthright for a pot of stew and deceives him and gets his birthright. And then Jacob and Rebekah, his mother, co- collude together to fake Jacob out, make him think that He's, even though he was smooth-skinned, that he was really Esau. And so he gets the blessing over Esau. And so God is going to preserve the seed through Jacob, but he's even going to do it despite human sin, despite the deceit. But the promise is in jeopardy again, because as a result of being deceived, Esau is mad and threatening to kill Jacob. Well, if, if Jacob dies, then the seed is ended. So what happens? Rebekah, his mother, whisks Jacob off to her brother Laban to be there. And um, he flees to Haran. God appears to him in a dream, a ladder of angels ascending and descending, and confirms to him the promise of the land, the offspring, and universal blessing, even though Jacob is still in the height of his degeneracy. Then, in God's good providence, To continue the seed, uh, Jacob marries a couple of godly women, Rachel and Leah, and together with their handmaidens, 12 sons of Jacob are born who become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes. But here's another problem. Jacob has served Laban for 14 years, and there was a lot of strife during that time. And Jacob leaves Laban without notice, And Laban pursues him with a view to doing him harm. And again, Jacob is in the line of the seed; It must be protected. But now Laban is out to do him harm. But we read in Genesis 31 and verse 24, God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. God protects Jacob from Laban. But there's still another threat to the promise. As Jacob is journeying back to Canaan, he hears about his brother Esau coming with 400 men. Now, the last time he saw Esau, he had deceived him out of his birthright and blessing. And Esau was so mad, he was determined to kill him. Now he's coming with 400 men. What would you be thinking? He's going to kill me. And so he divides his flocks, thinking, well, at least he'll only kill half of us. And, uh, and yet he's fearful. That's when, in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the angel. Probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, maybe a Christophany. And he wrestles all night with the angel. That may be the point of Jacob's conversion, when he is humbled, humbled to submit to God, to receive the covenant blessings. And as a result of that, Jacob prays to God in his fear of Esau. And when they finally meet up, Esau falls on his neck and kisses him. He doesn't kill him, but they embrace and they are reconciled. There's one more incident that threatens God's promise of a seed through the family of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, but he had a daughter by the name of Dinah. And at one point, Dinah is violated by a certain Shechem, from a pagan Canaanite nation, the Hivites. And this Shechem really loves Dinah and wants to marry his son to Jacob's daughter. And that would unite the two peoples, but that would pollute the seed. Do you see that? That would be a danger to the seed, to the descendants, if they were intermarried with these Canaanite pagans. And so Jacob's sons say, okay, we'll let you marry our sister, but you've got to be circumcised like we are. All the men get circumcised, and three days later, when they are in pain, if you understand what circumcision is, Levi and Simeon go out and slaughter all of them. And they rescue their daughter, their sister, Dinah. Now that's a threat. They could be destroyed by the the vengeful Canaanites for doing that. But in Genesis thirty five, five we read, and they journeyed there as they journeyed, that is Jacob and his sons, with their rescued daughter, sister. There was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Again, God interposing with his mercy to protect the line, to protect the seed. And God then proceeds to affirm to Jacob the covenant promises. Tom Schreiner says this, The stories of the preservation of Jacob and his children drive home one of the main themes of the narrative, narrative of Genesis. The preservation of Jacob's offspring is not due to human ingenuity or even human virtue. Only God's covenant promise can explain why this small family escaped disaster after disaster and was preserved intact. You following that? A lot of history, but you see God's preserving grace throughout. Then there's one more, God's promised redemption, graciously preserved through Judah and Joseph. The patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, they were not virtuous men. And we've, we've seen the, the sins and weaknesses of Abraham, of Isaac, especially Jacob. And the sons of Jacob were not moral men. Jacob sinfully showed favoritism to his son Joseph. And as a result of that, his 11 brothers were jealous of Joseph. What did they do? They wanted to dispatch him, get rid of him. The first plan was to throw him into a pit and let him die there. But then there was a caravan of Ishmaelites and they decided to sell him to slavery. So the 11 brothers of Joseph, they take his coat of many colors, which Joseph in his favoritism, had, Jacob had given to Joseph. They dip it in goat's blood and they bring it to Jacob and say, oh, we found your son's coat. I guess a wild animal got him. And for years they deceived Jacob into thinking his son Joseph was dead. But the story of Joseph is an amazing one of God's providence. Clearly God was with him. We're told several times in Genesis 39, God was with him. God was with him in the home of Potiphar. God was with him even when he was slandered by Potiphar's wife and put in prison. God was with him in the prison. Many of you know the story. God gave to Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And he interpreted the dreams of his two cellmates. One was killed. The other was released, the cupbearer. And at one point, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And the cupbearer who had been with Joseph in prison said to Pharaoh, "I, I know a man who can interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dream. The dream was that there were going to be seven abundant years of crop and then seven lean years of famine. Joseph becomes exalted to second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh because he understood the dream and he understood that for the seven years they need to store up food so that they would have food for the seven years of famine. And then, but God's purpose was not merely to preserve the Egyptians. God's purpose was greater than that. And then by an amazing twist of providence, Joseph's brothers, the same brothers that had sold him into slavery they're suffering from the famine, and so their father Jacob sends them to Egypt to get food. And there they meet up with the brother they had, they had sold to slavery years earlier, and he's second in command. Why? What was God's purpose? Well, when Joseph finally divulges himself to his brothers, listen to the purpose for which God allowed him to be sold into slavery. Genesis 45, beginning at verse 5. Now do not, he's Joseph speaking to his brothers. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all this household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And in the very well-known statement in Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph puts it very succinctly to his brothers when he says, As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So the seed is providentially, graciously preserved by God. Now, here they are in Egypt. There's a danger of the Hebrew people being polluted by intermarriage with the Egyptians. But do you know how God protected his seed? The Hebrews were shepherds. And the Egyptians despised shepherds. And they said, we're not going to let you mingle with us. We're going to keep you separate. And so they gave them a separate place, the land of Goshen, in their enmity toward the Hebrews. But in God's plan, it was to protect the purity of the seed by keeping them separate from the Egyptians. And so we leave Genesis with the seed of Abraham, the promised seed in Egypt. Their destination was Canaan, but the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet full. God was not yet ready to judge the Canaanites and bring his people into the land, but that's where they were headed. Jacob insists on being buried in the land of Canaan because he knows God's promise that that's where they're going to end up. And the closing words of Genesis are these, Genesis 50, 24 and following. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis ends with the seed of the promise, Joseph, in a coffin in Egypt. But God's not finished. It is not the end of the story. Tom Schreiner says, The kingdom is the Lord's. But Egypt was not where they were supposed to be. The offspring of Abraham were scarcely as many as the stars. They did not live in the land of Canaan, and worldwide blessing was not even close. Still, the family of the patriarch survived and was even beginning to thrive. The Lord had preserved them, even though they were small and weak, even while they were sojourners in the land promised to them. He had showered grace on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by making a covenant with them and showing them grace again and again. Listen to this final statement. The preservation of the offspring clearly was the Lord's work. For Abraham's family survived despite barrenness, sin, stupidity, squabbles, and famine. That's the narrative of Genesis. God makes a promise. Someday a seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And you follow that seed through Genesis and the amazing, gracious preservation of that promise by God despite all of these things that were working against it. Now, let's briefly, let's talk about some doctrines that we derive from the book of Genesis. First of all, the doctrine of God. We see God's sovereignty, don't we, in the book of Genesis. We see that God controls all people and all events. He has the heart of the king in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. We see the doctrine of God's holiness in the book of Genesis. God loves righteousness. He hates sin, as indicated by bringing judgment in the worldwide flood, raining fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their immorality and other sins. God is holy. We see God's mercy and grace, which I'll comment on in a moment. The doctrine of man is presented to us in the book of Genesis. Man is made in God's image. We are the high point of God's creation on the earth. We're intelligent. We're moral beings. We're co-rulers with God to take dominion over the rest. And God, in the beginning, made us male and female. Why do we argue against the perversion of our society and say, no, it's only male and female? Some conservative people who are not Christians say, well, it's always been that way. It's always been that way for thousands of years. I remember Rush Limbaugh, a conservative talk show host, would say, well, this is the way it's always been. Yeah, but so what? What's to say it can't change? But we argue it's that way because God in the beginning said male and female. That's why we stand on that. The doctrine of marriage and the family is here in Genesis. One man, one woman to cleave together for life till death parts them. All to multiply. We have the doctrine of work and rest. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest is here. And the fourth commandment, later given, is based on the fact that God worked six days and he rested the seventh. That's why we are to work six days and rest the seventh. The doctrine of sin and death. We see the deep depravity in the human heart as a result of the fall. And Romans 5.12 says that Adam was our federal representative. And when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned in him. It says, therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as, as in Adam, all die. From Genesis, we know that we're destined to die because of the sin of our first parents. But oh, how we see the doctrines of mercy and grace in the book of Genesis. I know I ran through it very quickly, it was a whirlwind, maybe overwhelming to some of you. But don't we see the grace of God throughout Genesis? His grace in sparing Adam and Eve. His grace in sparing Noah and his family and the human race. His grace protecting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob from their own folly and from the enemies that would destroy the seed. His grace in raising up Joseph to save his people to keep them safe from intermarrying with the pagan Egyptians. The grace of God permeates the narratives of Genesis. We see the doctrine of election. God chose the younger over the older. It becomes an example of the doctrine of election in Romans 9. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's grounded in the historical narrative of Genesis. We have the doctrine of justification by faith. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him by righteousness, as righteousness. Friends, this has been the only way of salvation throughout history. You're not saved by anything you do or contribute. You're saved by the grace of God through faith, either in the Savior to come or the Savior who has come. And in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, Galatians 3, Abraham is looked upon as the great exemplar, of salvation, justification by faith, as even Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. So we have the doctrine of justification in, in the first book of the Bible. The idea of the garden and the land, the theme of, of a land becomes a theme that is traced throughout Scripture. Remember, God's people and God's place. This is the first temple, the Garden of Eden. Later on, we're going to see in Exodus that there's a tabernacle where God manifests his presence, and later a temple. And now in the New Covenant age, where is God? He's in his gathered church. He's in you as a Christian. And one day, we have God present with us on a new earth, the new Jerusalem. And then there's the doctrine of Christ in the book of Genesis. Can you find Christ in the book of Genesis legitimately? You know, Jesus, when he said to the two men on the road to Emmaus, he said, beginning with the resurrected Jesus, he said, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus is in all the scriptures. Where is Jesus in Genesis? Well, consider he is there in contrast to the first Adam. He is the second Adam. The first Adam disobeyed in a garden. Jesus comes as the second Adam. And he perfectly obeys in the garden and says, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross. He is the second Adam. He is hinted at in 126, let us make man in our image. He is the seed of the woman who will eventually crush the head of the serpent. He is the place of safety, as was Noah's ark, 1 Peter 3. Jesus is the ark. Of safety he's the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 he appears in the Christophanies to Abraham Hagar and Jacob he is the son of God that God will provide in Genesis 22 God spared Abraham's son but he would not spare his own son but he will deliver him up for us all and then how many are the parallels between Joseph and Jesus And I just dipped into a couple of writers, Robert Candlish and A.W. Pink, the latter of which has 60 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was a type of Jesus, a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Let me just rattle off some of these parallels. Both Joseph and Jacob, uh, Jesus, were loved by their father. Both were rejected and despised by their brethren. Both foretold their future sovereignty. Both were sold for the price of a slave. Both were stripped of their coat. And as Joseph's bloody coat was presented to his father, Jesus, as it were, blood was presented to the heavenly father as the scapegoat in heaven. Both were sorely tempted, but did not sin. Both were falsely accused, but offered no defense. Both suffered at the hands of Gentiles, Egyptians and Romans. Both won the respect of their jailer, Jesus winning the respect of the Roman centurion. Both suffered, though innocent. Both were numbered with transgressors in prison. Joseph was with two criminals. The one man, he interpreted his dream and he was killed. The other man, he interpreted his dream and he was freed. Jesus hung between two thieves. One was condemned and lost the other was with him that day in paradise interesting both were delivered by the hand of god both were a revealer of secrets giving god the glory both warned of impending danger and told how to prepare for it both were exalted to the right hand of the king both were 30 years old when they began their public ministry check out genesis 41:46 and the real clincher, both made bread available for a starving world. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Well, very quickly, I know this has been a lot, an unusual amount. The lessons learned from Genesis. Let's draw a few quick lessons. First of all, God is one who keeps his word. When God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. Way back in Genesis 3.15, he said, There's gonna be someone, a seed of the woman, descendant of the woman, who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. Now, just in Genesis, we see how God is preserving the seed. The story's not over, it's just begun. But you're gonna see that God is gonna make good on his promise. He cannot lie. God's promises are true, and we are to trust them and believe them. Secondly, God chooses to use some very unlikely and sinful instruments. Think of Abram. He reaches down into Abraham, who's an idolater. Jacob is a deceitful man. All the patriarchs were were not noble men. They were born as a result of womb wars. Are you aware of that? Between Leah and Rachel and the handmaidens are all competing for Jacob's attention. There were womb wars. You hear of worship wars. Well, there were womb wars going on that birthed the 12 patriarchs. You have uh, Noah, godly Noah, getting drunk. Abraham, a flawed man, he lied um, out of self-protection. All of this should encourage us that despite our flaws and our foibles, God still wants to use us. How are we described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1? Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble, right? You have flaws, you have weaknesses, so do I. God uses flawed instruments as evidenced in Genesis Thirdly, God, uses, God sovereignly uses bad circumstances and bad people to do good for his people. Romans 8.28 is vividly illustrated in Genesis. God works all things together for good. He worked in the hearts of a pharaoh, King Abimelech, the Egyptians, who their hatred of the Hebrew shepherds. He worked through sinful men to accomplish his purposes, And we need to trust that even the bad things that have happened to us in our lives, God wants to use for our good. He wants to redeem them for our good. Fourthly, we are part of a depraved and wicked race of people. We all need a savior. Romans 3.23 is vividly illustrated in Romans, isn't it? All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. He looked at every thought of the intent of man's heart was only evil continually, right out of the gate, the book of Genesis. It's a wicked human race. But finally, Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. In the midst of all of that, God said, someday there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. My kingdom will prevail on the earth. And that seed of the woman, the serpent crusher, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Savior that we all need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this travelogue, this amazing account of your preservation, of your promise in the book of Genesis. Continue to show us, Lord, and cause us to marvel the unfolding of your gracious plan throughout history. To your praise, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.